Hi, welcome to the Behind the Balance Sheet podcast, where we meet leading investors and commentators and educate ourselves about the world of investing and the world. Our mission is to remove some of the mystique around investing and improve our understanding of what makes a successful investment or indeed an unsuccessful one. Our goal is to inform, educate and entertain. We hope you enjoy this and every episode. Behind the balance sheet and affiliates and podcast guests may own shares or have an economic interest in securities discussed in this podcast, which is aired for your education and entertainment only. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment advice or relied upon for investment decisions. Always do your own research. This podcast is sponsored by Stream by OfficeSense. I'm still getting used to the platform, but so far I'm impressed with how easy it is to use. Before Stream, when I was at the hedge funds, tapping into expert perspectives was time consuming and costly. Identifying experts, coordinating schedules, preparing questions, running the interview and transcribing notes. All this could take hours while not even being sure of the quality I would receive. With Stream, there's a library of over 20,000 expert calls and transcripts. No time spent organizing, immediate and unlimited access, no hassle. For institutional analysts, this is a game changer. I like it because first, the platform intuitively understands what I'm looking for. Stocks are tagged, so you can get qualitative insights directly, not just from company executives and competitors, but also from suppliers and customers. Second, the calls so far have been high quality, qualified experts and good questions from real analysts. Third, its library is going quickly with dozens of new transcripts added every day. I was surprised at the selections for the first stock I picked, which is just a mid-cap. Stream by OfficeSense looks like a great addition to any analytical toolkit. Visit streamrg.com forward slash btbs for more details. This podcast is intended to educate and entertain, but we also have a more serious purpose. We support the Financial Times financial literacy charity. Check it out on ft.com forward slash F-L-I-C. It's the most disadvantaged in society who get taken in by financial scams, by payday loans, and similar artful devices designed to part people from their money. We can change this. It's a straightforward task of education. This is a great cause and I urge you please to support it. Dominic Miel was an important figure in the world of distressed debt hedge funds and has been one of the most successful women in the hedge fund space, having built a $5 billion line of business from scratch. In this episode, we discuss why there are not more women in investing, why she thinks preparing a script to present is compulsory, as she puts it, like makeup for a French woman, why she believes professional women walk a fine line between being assertive and being nice. Why we could be on the cusp of a really interesting window of opportunity in distressed. And why young investors are facing a completely new scenario. Miel is smart, French, assertive, opinionated and funny. And I hope this podcast inspires some women to think about a career in investing. And I hope it gets us some more women listeners because my audience is too male-oriented. So, Dominique, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for coming on. Tell me, you were an associate at Lehman. You turned down Jeff Bezos' offer to be his 15th employee, 
and you ended up at Canyon Advisors, a young hedge fund which lost half its assets in the Asian crisis as you joined. You went on to become a partner in a firm which grew to $25 billion. Did you always want to be an investor? Thank you for having me first, Steve. And the answer is no, I did not. Uh, and that's something that I always start with because I think it's um, an unusual start or something that uh, practitioners seldom say. You have this impression that investors found their calling when they were six or seven, started investing their high school tuition or, or traded lemon and lemonades. It was definitely not my case. Uh, I was born and raised in Paris. And after my studies, I wanted to discover the world. I got a job offer in Tahiti for a sort of menial job and one in banking in New York. And truthfully, I didn't care if I was going to do basket weaving or finance. I just wanted to uh, discover a new city. And New York seemed like lots of fun. And that's where I went. And it's not uh, until years later when I went to business school and I took a class in investing taught by Bill Sharp uh, that I really thought, this is what I want to do. I want to be on the buy side. I want to be investing. Uh, and uh, then I sought a job uh, with Canyon Capital. So it was a, it was a late uh, vocation. And Bill Sharp, is that the man that invented the Sharp Ratio? He is indeed. He was at the time teaching a PhD slash MBA class, uh, which I found completely fascinating. Uh, and it was helped by the fact that I had an enormous crush on the man, even though he was uh, quite a few years uh, my elder and happily married. Uh, but so I was, uh, I was awestruck by him. Uh, that helped sort of form my idea about what career I wanted uh, to have, yes. And what was it that was so fascinating? Why, why did you like it so much? You know, um, this was really my discovery of the two schools of thought. Um, one is the School of Chicago and the modern portfolio theory versus the School of uh, Graham and Dodd. The latter is about stock picking. It's about trying to find an intrinsic value in stocks different and apart from uh, the trading value. And obviously buying stocks or assets below their intrinsic value and trying to make money by those two values converging. That, that was one school of thought. And the modern portfolio theory says something quite different. It says that basically there is no such a thing as true value. Trading value is what the value is. It is that value where you can transact. So what investing is all about is uh, forming a portfolio of assets that give you a return that's commensurate with the risk. And that's the Sharpe ratio. And so the idea was, much more about mathematics and constructing a bunch of assets mm. that would basically match that uh, objective of, of optimizing returns. And I thought that was very, very interesting. I thought that matched my idea much better. And that's what Sharp, uh, Bill Sharp was teaching. Yeah, interesting. I, I mean, I, you know, I've got an online training school where I have to teach some of this, some of the theory. And I always struggle 
because you know in practice the theory doesn't work right i mean it's uh quite a, a, a bizarre thing look i loved your book and uh the, the book Damsel in Distress is a story of your life and your career. And you talk a lot about women in finance. And I, I just want to read a comment to you. You said, investing is highly creative and requires imagination, ingenuity, and guts, which I think is a really good, really good line. I think it's very true. All qualities that women have in equal quantity with men. And then you go on to say, the hurdle for many women is the cultural preconception that skills in maths and related fields are associated with masculinity. This leads women to underassess their abilities to perform at the highest level in finance and consequently opt out of it. Men overrate their competence and jump straight in. I don't agree with you because hedge funds have a single relentless focus on making money. Why would they discriminate? That's, uh, you know, that's the conundrum. If um, And by the way, the quote you just read, this is not me making up, you know, sort of assertions. This is a study that I'm quoting where it's it's really quantified that men tend to overrate their skills and women tend to underrate them. Hedge funds' objective is to maximize return. It is well documented by academics and research that teams that are diverse make better decisions. So one would logically conclude that you're going to make better investments if you have a diverse team. And gender is one uh, diversity, but not the only one. Certainly, if you had minorities uh, in the in the team, it would. Um, at least that's what the theory says, it would work much better than if you had 10 white men coming out of Harvard Business School. And I think that research that those ideas have not been internalized uh, enough by hedge funds who are still run and managed by men. And for better or for worse, they hire people who look like them and speak like them. And it's it's a very natural human uh, inclination to seek people who are your tribe, right? So I think what what breaks that are um, a couple of things. One is a a tremendous push by uh, limited partners, by investors demanding diversity. And uh, I think it really started with David Swenson at Yale, specifically saying, you uh, GPs will be rated and graded on diversity, not only of the firm, but specifically of the investment team. And also women seeing more of their peers making it in the hedge fund business. And that's why I wrote the book, because if you don't see it, you don't want to be it. You can't be it. If you don't have any women speaking and saying, this is a great career, this is a career you can have uh, where you can uh, make a lot of money. That's helpful. And women usually don't really have that as a goal or don't tend to say it. If you don't see those women who have had a thrilling and successful and uh, really excellent career, it's really difficult for young women to think that's that's a path for me. So I think, you know, these are the two uh, at least critical factors that are, it's changing for sure. It's been changing. I think it is. I mean, the other point you made in the book that you said your bonus was higher than the head of marketing, who's the only other woman partner. And you said heads of marketing are often women. You think they're underpaid. I mean, surely it's right that though they should get less than the people in the front office. I mean, it's not. Marketing's much easier. I think than so. 
Yeah, I don't I, think so. And this is really a revolution to me in the hedge fund business. If you think of the large, very large hedge funds, they haven't beat the market in a decade, not systematically. I'm not saying that one of them hasn't beat the market one year or two years, but I'm saying that as an asset class, hedge funds have underperformed the market. And that's why investors uh, are supposed to put their money in a hedge fund because they beat the market systematically, but they're not doing it. So why are they uh, still putting their money in it? Because of the marketing, because it's a good story, because they're serious investors, because they have a good back office, because they're one-stop shopping, they offer tons of products. In other words, in a mature industry, what makes a difference is not the performance, it's the story, it's the branding, it's, uh, it's the packaging, and hedge funds are no different. But where is the value now? The value is not in the front office, the, the value is in the marketing. That's in, uh, uh, it's an interesting concept. I'm not, it's not one I'm familiar with. And- it's not, it's not, but I think... Look, why are you buying a Gucci pair of glasses, uh, sunglasses? It's not because they're better or you're going to see better. It's because you like the brand. Why are people putting money in those mammoth, very large hedge funds, including my ex-employer? Uh, it's not because they are great investors who are going to beat the market because they haven't. It's because no one's going to fire you if you invest with those big hedge funds because they're serious, because they have a reputation, because they have a brand. And that's not the, the front office. Okay. Well, um, that sounds good. Then I'm going to go for a job as market. Not because, you know, having been running my own business for the last three years, I've become more adept. I've been still got a lot to learn in the marketing front, but I, I'm, I'm better at it. Um, I, look, it's a controversial idea and one for debate. I'm not proposing that it's the end-all, be-all of, uh, of you know, the state of affair, but it's that's my belief, at least. I mean, I, I don't know that I agree with you in, to the extent that, you know, the big firms that I know, um, the founders of the firms, the principals of the firms have been very involved in shaping that marketing image. And so it's, you know, the, the head of marketing's executing a vision somebody else's vision and you know i i get what you're saying if you're the brains behind the vision and the brains behind the brand that's a real skill i've not come across any heads of marketing that are at that level with the exception of my neighbor tim who may be listening to this tim of course you're doing a brilliant job but i mean i think this is changing you know a bloomberg story i was reading listed nine new starts by women two of them one billion dollar startups by Tiger Grand Cup, so people ex-Viking and Lone Pine. So, I mean, is doing the problem of underrepresentation by women, do think it could be turning? I think it could be improving? I think it's turning and improving for sure. Um, and it is important that there's a number of new female-led funds with scale, right? Because uh, of a few things. First of all, as you know, if you don't have scale, you're surviving likelihood is is low. And 1 billion is really kind of a marker. There's nothing magical about that number, but it, it is a marker where you can have a solid back office, a solid legal department, a, a solid marketing, right? So it, it really helps to launch with scale rather than struggle for years to attract capital to get to, get to that size. 
Nine is better than zero, of course. Um, nine is, is still a very difficult number because if one of them or two of them fail and the failure rate in hedge funds is, is very, very high, then you have uh, the issue of, well, you know, two very visible women hedge funds you know, have failed. And that's a high rate. And I think there'll be a lot of, uh, there's a lot of pressure on those nine or 10 women, whatever the number may be, to succeed. And we're in a tough market. And the last thing I'd say is it's really important, as you said, quite a few of these women are sponsored by their former employer. And this is a, a sort of tradition, historical process that we've seen a lot with men, but only with men. Tiger has spun off dozens of tiger cubs, right? But they've always been men. It's the first time that we're seeing seeding of female funds by very large funds. And that's, uh, that's a really great start and a great change. I should know this, being a, a former partner of a tiger cub myself, but I can't think of any woman in the front office at Tiger. I think Julian Robertson mainly employed men. And I, right. I mean, I couldn't be sure of this, but I know um, of all all the people that I've met, they were they're all men. So I, right. In fact, but, when I think about my twenty years working uh, as an investor in, in a hedge fund, I can only think of one woman who was uh, in distress, at least, who was a partner and who had um, the support of her former employer. That's Meredith Moore, who was a very early analyst at Fairlawn Capital, which at the time was was uh, led by uh, its founder, Tom Steyer. And he had the vision to help her. I think, I believe he seeded her, at least invested in her, and she went on to be a great, a great investor. Well, I, you know, I do um, courses for institutional investors. I do a forensic accounting course, helping people improve their skills. My last three courses, um, I had one of them had one woman in six. The next one had two women in 10. And a couple of weeks ago, I was in Paris, where you are now, and there were five women out of six students, which has been the record so far. I don't know if that's a, a French thing. Do you think there is a difference in the representation of women in different countries? Would you see more female, more women investors in France, for example? I don't know. I don't know the French market at all, having never worked in France, really. Um, But I'd say bravo. That's a wonderful trend. And going back to something you you mentioned, how do we define the skills needed for investors? If you start with, you really need to like numbers, you've got to be very good at math. You've got to be a ruthless deal maker. Guess what? You're not going to have five women in 10 students, right? But if you start with, it's a very creative job. It takes ingenuity. It takes imagination. You have to be a good listener. I think you have a very good shot at having five or more women recognizing themselves and their competences in that description. So if we really change the concept, the idea, the archetype of an investor, I think it really can, it can help move the attraction of the job. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it is a very creative job, and I don't think you need to be that good at numbers. I mean, you need to obviously be able to add up, but I mean, exactly, you need to add up. But a lot of jobs you need to be yeah, able yeah. to add up and have some 
sense of numbers. Yes, do if you hate math and numbers, do you want to be in finance and investing? Probably not. But do you need to be a rocket scientist to enter the, the field of investing? I don't think so. No, absolutely not. If you enjoy this podcast, you're bound to enjoy our free newsletter on Substack. It's a weekly email on interesting investing topics. Visit BehindTheBalanceSheet.com and hit the sign up button. While you're there, you might want to check out our brilliant online investor training school. Hundreds of students have taken our flagship Analyst Academy course, which teaches you everything you need to become a serious equity investor. And if you're a professional investor, we run a forensic accounting course for institutional clients and soon a cohort-based course for serious amateurs. Email us at info at behindthebalancesheet.com. Now, in the, in the book, you said, you talked about your own character. You, you said, these moments of impatience are rare and stem from legitimate reasons, such as dealing with incompetence or absurdity, having to repeat oneself, being told what one already knows, or waiting. So that seems like a rather terrifying um, set of attributes that you we, um, don't want to keep you waiting. Um, one of my bosses smashed a phone through his Bloomberg screen when he worked for one of the big bulge bracket banks. He did this more than once. Do you think women are held to different standards? I think I was held to a different standard and most women I've talked to uh, believe so as well. I won't make the generalization that all women are held to different standards because that would open me up for a lot of, uh, a lot of comments. But yes, so to start with, am I impatient and do I, if you ask my kids, do I have a bad temper and do I tend to go nuclear, as they say? Yes, I do. Uh, did I ever smash a phone or yell at a person? Uh, no, I don't believe in, I certainly don't believe in physical violence. <laughs> that seems to me just about the worst uh, behavior you could have uh, in general, but particularly at a, in a working uh, environment. And uh, I don't tend to yell either, but I, I can act uh, very mean. Uh, <laughs> and do our women sort of seen in a different light? Yes. Uh, for example, uh, I, I remember more than once if I got in such a state of impatience and if I was angry and expressed myself in, uh, in such terms, you know, I often got the reaction, don't get emotional. And I said, I'm not emotional. I'm angry. Can you feel the difference? Uh, and so, um, you know, there's uh, there's a very good research about that where uh, I think it's a Harvard study that looks at how women are perceived and they walk a fine line needing to be assertive and uh, aggressive and having an opinion while at the same time being nice. Not being nice for a female professional is, is sort of the 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 element that is going to is going to kill you at work you must be nice it's tough it's very tough to be nice and firm you know and yeah. warm and aggressive uh, but that's that's a line that a lot of women have uh, told me they they try to walk yeah well of course it's always a very high pressure environment now you say you started work at 6:30 a.m. you were based in the west coast is that because you were based in the west coast is that because you're really conscientious and why, why so early? 
No, it's just because I was based in LA and 6.30 is, is when the market opens at 9.30 in New York. I tried to come in a little before uh, because I, I, you know, you, not everybody did. I personally like to be at my seat when the market opened and ready to transact if I needed to. And I mean, I don't know much about distress debt, but you were talking about the United bankruptcy. It took over a thousand days and, you know, negotiations often taking one to two years. It must require quite a lot of tenacity and persistence. Is that why you were good at the job? I and mean, what sort of skills and qualities are required in distress debt? The same sort of complex. It's, like, it's, it's much more complex than equities. Equities are quite it, straight, simple, yeah? Correct. It's a lot about the strategy. It's, it's really, if you think of it as a game, it's a game of risk or a game of chess. You have your peons, meaning are you invested in the loan or the bonds or the uh, vendor debt or the equity sometimes? And what are the assets worth? And you're trying to position yourself as best you can to take a piece of the pie when the company emerges from bankruptcy, because distressed investing is mainly buying the debt of a company that's on the verge of bankruptcy or already in bankruptcy. So it's very strategic. Uh, It is very creative. It, as you said, requires tenacity because bankruptcies are often long. Um, they often present twists and turns where you think you won, but you didn't. And there's a last minute twist that can take the forms of, you know, equity holders wanting more value or a loan not being put in place at the right time at the right rate or judge making a decision that you didn't think uh, he or she would. So it really is a, it's a fun area of investing really because it's 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 like a show it you know you have adversaries you have uh friends of yours in in the same layer of debt uh you have advisors you have to negotiate with them you have to listen you have to propose a plan that eventually will be voted uh voted on and approved to get the company out of bankruptcy so it is a complex process but it's 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 really thrilling uh, mm-hmm. as a uh, as a particular asset class. And when you're making the investment, is it, are you making the investment in the hope and expectation that the company will go bust, or are you making the expectation investment in the expectation that these bonds are so cheap? If it goes bust, we know we can get our money back because we know there are these assets. And if it doesn't go bust, we'll, we'll is, is it kind the of- latter? The latter. Uh, you usually have an assessment of the value of the assets and uh, whether the bonds are covered by those assets or not. And the whole crux of the game is to understand or forge a path uh, through which you're going to realize that value. And that path may take the form of a bankruptcy. It may take the form of a restructuring out of bankruptcy. Uh, There are many different routes you could take to get your money back and more, obviously, plus a return. But that's really the essential of investing, trying to, to figure out the value, how it's going to get distributed, and when and, and what triggers the, dis- the distribution. And is that how do you assess the value of the assets? Because presumably, often, these are companies that may not survive or would need to be repacked. How do you understand, is it the value of the planes or is it the value of the business in other cases? And how do you go about that? And so, you know, 
that's where my business and yours converge. Assessing the value of a company is what you do for stocks. And I do the same exercise for the value of a company for a distressed uh, bond, meaning, yes, there could be hard assets, claims or intellectual property or you know contracts, but it's also the value of the cash flow. So when I say value of assets, I don't necessarily mean putting a price on each piece of real estate and, uh, and property like you would in an auction. I really do mean valuing the business, the company, like you do for stocks, and then applying it with different rules of distribution to the entire capital structure and figuring out who gets what and how, how do you get the biggest part. But you would go about the value of the business the same way as I would. Absolutely. You know, uh, present value of cash flow, multiple of EBITDA, dividend model, you know, hard asset uh, valuations, et cetera, all the classic methods. I loved in the book, you were talking about a Boeing meeting where you landed the aircraft in the simulator and the JP Morgan airline analyst with encyclopedic knowledge crashed. Now, the, I'm assuming this is a guy called Chris Avery who used to know everything about aviation, including the number of the plane. But the one thing he didn't know was whether the stocks were going to go up or down, which was what he was paid to do. And um, are you one of these women, like my wife, can do... So it's not, it's not him. It's, it's not, not him. him. Well, two. Oh, interesting. Um, but are you one of these... My wife can do anything, right? So she just, you know, if she wants to be able to do something, she just does it. You know, so the kids were learning the piano and she was helping them learn. So she taught herself the piano. Are you one of those sort of super smart people? It's hard to call yourself super smart. Uh, I would I would not do that. I, I uh, you know, I'm not that vain. Um, but I think I usually try things without a lot of fear of failing, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think that is that is a quality that you actually learn as an investor because you fail a lot. Mm. You're wrong a ton. And the ability to take that failure, that horrible feeling of being wrong and just moving on as if it didn't, not as if it didn't matter. Of course it matters because you have to make the money back, but as if failures are part of your business. I think that is a great life lesson and life skills that us investors get day in, day out, right? The simple fact that you're going to be wrong, uh, hopefully, you know, less than 50% of the time, but quite a few times. And of course, that's another thing that the media tend to not talk about when they describe great investors, Ray Dalio, and, you know, whoever it is, Warren Buffett, etc. It's, it's sort of black and white. It's all or nothing. It's either Bill Wong and, you know, uh, crashing his, he his hedge fund, uh, Archegos, you know, in a spectacular way, or, you know, it's Paul Tudor Jones never having a, or David Tepper never having a, a losing trade in their lives. Neither of those two extremes are right, as you know, as well as I do, that the daily job is to try to be right more often than wrong, but it's hard. It's a grind. And just being able to say, okay, I got that one totally wrong. You know, let me understand why, and let's just show up at work the next day and do it again. That's yeah. a pretty good skill, and that sort of makes you think, well, I can try to learn the piano. The path, the journey will be fun, and maybe I'm, I get there, maybe I don't. 
then that's okay. No, I, I mean, uh, there's as high an instance of failure in distressed debt as there is in equities, is there? Yes, absolutely. Now, you talk about traveling the world. You created this CLO product and you went around presenting to investors. Why was it so important to meet people in person? And why, why were you so good at the, this? Because you built a huge business, right? We did. I did build a huge CLO business, uh, which is still uh, growing under the guy who uh, who replaced me and who used to work uh, for me, who's doing a great job. And that's, I think, an essential business at Canyon. I think it's uh, the meeting people in person is that's like in any business, right? Um, just forging a relationship is much harder through a screen, don't you think? Yeah. Oh, of course. But um, if you're having to go all around the world selling, that's really tough job. And you talked about, you said speech preparation is like makeup for French women, which I, I love. But you talk of a high-end pitch with a white glove delivery. You believe in lavishly rehearsing. You roll out every word to the comma and practice religiously. I mean, why do you need to do that? Because you know everything about the job. You know much more than the person on the other side. I mean, I couldn't do that because I like to make it up as I go along. Because if I, I no, but I would freeze if I had a script. So, I, you know, if I go and do a presentation at a conference, I have a set of slides. But I wouldn't have a script because if I had a script, I would screw up. And if I make well, up, I, I think we may have touched upon a gender difference here, Steve. Uh, I think so. I think preparation, maybe over preparation even, is uh, at least as I've observed it, a feminine attribute. And it, it is related to the fact that we think if we that, that we underestimate our skills, right? If you underestimate your skills, you tend to over-prepare, you tend to compensate with lots and lots of rehearsal and knowing your scripts, etc. I'd say there are two things. There, there's a practical reason for having a script and, and uh, rehearsing. Typically in a pitch meeting, there is a set of slides where you make a presentation and you want to be as smooth as possible. And I've found over the years that really knowing your script to the comma helps a natural delivery if you get off script and it makes it, it runs a lot better because you're talking about making the presentation five times a day for two weeks. Yeah. Uh, so if you have a ve very well rehearsed show, like any show, you know, it's like a it's like a play. You rehearse a play to present a very polished show and product to potential investors. That's my way of doing it. I don't particularly think there's only one way of doing it. But since I was the boss, that was the way that, that my team did it. <laughs> Oh, I'm glad it didn't work for you. I probably wouldn't have lasted very long with that. But that, I mean, I, I, it's just interesting because I think um, you know everybody has their own way of approaching these these sorts of things, and just interesting to learn why somebody else does it in in a different in a different fashion. I mean, I've I, you know I've realized that I quite like public speaking, but uh, that is the way I do it. I rehearse quite a bit before uh, making a formal presentation to an audience. And I think I'd be very curious uh, if you asked 10 women if they didn't give the exact same answer that they prepare copiously. I, I mean, I don't mean to give the impression that I don't do any preparation, but 
you know, no, it, different uh, styles. I but the, totally the get it. The idea of, of doing it to a script would panic me because I think, well, what happens if I, you, and then you forget something and you're, oh, whereas I'm, well, look, I know which is the better result because you're the one that built up the $5 billion business. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, look, to me, it is like makeup for French women. You want to look very good without looking like you put on makeup. That's yeah. That was my goal. So let's talk about the airlines because well, that's something else we have in common. Because when I was on the South Side, I, did, I covered the airline industry. And Michael O'Leary, the Ryanair boss, um, a couple of weeks ago, indicated that fares would have to go up a lot. His median fare is 40 euros. And he's talking of 50 to 60 euros. I have to say that if we're going to save the planet, then you know people have to f- fly a bit less. And I think that is probably a good thing. And actually, I think it may have to be much higher than that. You're involved in a number of the US airline restructurings in the early 2000s. The US industry is a lot more consolidated now, but we don't have that so much internationally, for example, in Europe. I just wondered, you know, how do you see the industry panning out in the next several years? We've got three challenges. We've got very indebted balance sheets post-COVID. We've got very high fuel prices, which don't look like they're going to go down. And we've got this increasing pressure to cut emissions. So what's going to happen? What do you see? Well, you're asking me a question that I haven't thought about uh, for a minute before before this very moment. Uh, so I'm not sure I'm particularly qualified to make predictions. Um as to so one thing I'd say is that at least in the US, the elasticity of demand uh, in airline transportation was very low, meaning that fare increases would have a very direct immediate impact and, and diminish demand. And of course, the problem with the airline industry is that it's a very high fixed cost uh, business, right? You basically have a product that you need to fill in. You have the main <laughs> expenses are there whether or not uh, you fly a full plane. So the objective has always been to fill the planes. And that seems like it's becoming very difficult with higher costs and with constraints on, uh, on emission and also episodes of COVID where you really demand is crushed. Anyways, typically, so we've seen a number of, of recent bankruptcies, right, in Europe and internationally. Uh, I think LATAM filed for bankruptcy, Scandinavian Airlines filed for bankruptcy. And that's typically the response uh, in every crisis bankruptcies, uh, cutting debt and leverage on the balance sheet, and then emerging if it is a, a national uh, flagship airline, those typically emerge with or without the help of the state, a lot of times with the help of the state. Uh, And then the smaller airlines simply liquidate. And then it's a bloodbath for bondholders, historically uh, bondholders in uh, liquidation and even in in, uh, bankruptcies and restructurings of airlines have fared very, very poorly because there's a lot of uh, creditors ahead of ahead of them. So that's what I imagine happens, right? Smaller airlines get crushed and the industry consolidates into bigger bigger airlines and fares go up. And with the background and the context that there's been, at least in the US, a tremendous deflation on airfare in 
you know, 20, 30 years, obviously before COVID and that inflation episode, but fares drastically went down, you know, as a product of consumption uh, to the point you could never fly for $49 than 15 years ago from, you know, LA to San Francisco. Uh, and that, that's a fair that's completely normal on Southwest or was normal up until now. And I think we're probably seeing the end of this deflation and the end of very cheap, you know, uh, flying for, for everyday consumers. Yeah, I mean, it looks to me a very bleak picture because, you know, in an inflationary environment, when the economy's starting to slow, people are going to have less money, prices are going to go up, and there's a lot of labor in the airline industry. So there's going to be... There's a lot of labor, there's a lot of fuel, and there's a ton of fixed costs. Yeah, it doesn't look too good in that look. Um, I mean, there's not a lot of crossover between our two worlds, the world of equity investing and the world of distressed debt investing. I mean, basically, by the time you get interested, I should be long gone, right? Um, You probably should, yes. But I I just wondered, you know, you must have an obsessive focus on the opportunity to survive and a much greater granularity in cash flow, even like seasonal cash flow. Yes, cash flow is critical. But are there some things that I should I could learn from looking at how you would approach distressed debt situation? I mean, would the seasonality of the cash flow be very important to you, for example? It would be if the company was levered, because of course paying interest on your debt is not a seasonal phenomenon. You gotta pay it every quarter. Some uh, that is even monthly, but most of it is is a quarterly payment, whether or not you have uh, earnings coming in. So it is usually a bad combination to have a seasonal business with a high levered uh, capital structure. I think generally, I guess stock investors, particularly in growth areas, don't look at the balance sheet. And they don't look at the balance sheet for a very good reason because um, there's no debt, right? There's, you know, all those tech companies don't have, uh, don't, don't have debt. They have uh, massive equity layers and that's about, that's about it. But I do think it would help uh, for stock investors or equity investors to understand the bankruptcy process. And, you know, I was reading this morning on Bloomberg, an article about a cryptocurrency trading platform going uh, bankrupt. I think it's might be Voyager or what, one of such. And of course, the question is, are the clients, the customers of, uh, let's say, Voyager, um, how are they ranked versus other debtors of the company? They have their investments, their savings, their cryptocurrencies locked up in the estate, right? Because they uh, have not been able to withdraw their funds since June 12 or so. The estate is now frozen in bankruptcy, um, helped by the the what is called in the US, the stay, meaning that creditors cannot take their money out. And where are they going to rent? Presumably, or at least that's uh, the initial read, there are unsecured creditors, meaning that they will get their money after secured creditors have been paid. And uh, apparently the company has been repaying some 900 million of debt 
ahead of filing for bankruptcy. So that's all value and cash that's left the estate before people got their money back, right? So did they know? Are they aware? Did they have any inkling that they could be treated as sort of the last, you know, layer that receives a distribution and can take their money out? It it matters, right? It matters uh, a lot. Um, and this this is kind of new territory uh, because, of course, those uh, those companies are, are brand new, and it it's not completely clear. Uh, who stands where in the bankruptcy claim distribution. But I think it would help in some instances, uh, some equity investors or to understand the process. Yeah. Yeah. And look at the balance sheet. The crypto world is something I find fascinating, but totally incomprehensible. When I was reading about, you know, the various machinations recently, and one of the companies, I've forgotten which, they were letting people claim interest of, 15 plus percent on their crypto holdings, not just once, but more than once. And I, I, I'm like, I'm completely baffled as to how anybody could could manage to, first of all, claim 15% interest when interest rates are in the floor, and then do it more than once. I've been doing, doing uh, the, the whole crypto world. I, I must say, I am find it very interesting, but I find it, I'm obviously, you know, I need to be half my age to even think about understanding it. I went to meet, uh, friend of mine who was over from New York and he was attending a crypto conference in London. And I, I went, met him for lunch. And um, I was the oldest person in the room. By, I mean, you know, the next oldest person was like 20 years younger than me. I, I felt ancient. It was horrible, funny. But I was reading in the FT the other day, um, the value of distressed bonds in Europe is rapidly rising. At the end of 21, it was about 6 billion and it's now about 40, it's like doubled in the last month. Is this going to be a bonanza for distressed debt investors? Is this, you know, the interest rates rising? Because they're going to rise a lot further from the sound of it. They're going to rise a lot further. It could be. It really could be the first episode of true um, solid supply of distressed opportunities. Because, and I say that, because you 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 know someone could object that in uh, 2020 uh, with the uh, COVID eruption there was quite a bit of distress bonds, but what happened then is that uh, the amount, at least in the U.S., of uh, distress bonds quickly rose and then disappeared within three months, and so the distress episode was very shallow and. You know, the biggest distress that was, um, I think it was Hertz, which was, um, I want to say, 25 billion in liabilities. It's tiny when you think of a Lehman Brothers back in 2008, which was, you know, 600 uh, billion. So, so it was small uh, bankruptcies and very quick turnaround. Why? Because the Fed intervened very quickly and very massively, and the market rallied and distress disappeared. This time around, the Fed is acting the opposite way. They are shrinking their balance sheet. So far from helping uh, resolve a distressed episode, they are actually helping to create it. Uh, so, um, and then if you think about what is a distressed bond, it's typically a bond that that trades at a spread of a thousand over um, the the risk free rate. Um, of course, when the risk free rate is is uh, next to zero, 
that's 10%, that's attractive. But, you know, when it's, if it's three or four or 5%, that, then you have a really attractive type of return for, for the distressed asset class, which uh, will, you know, I'm sure uh, attract a lot of, a lot of investors. So, it seems like we could be on the cusp of a really interesting window of, of opportunity. The trick, however, is that most distressed investors of size are already investing, invested, already long. So, you know, they're probably going to go through quite a bit of losses uh, at this year. So if you're a new investor, that's great. If you're invested already, it's tough. The, the number of zombie com- companies out there, you know, where their interest is more than the earnings, is that something that has been a problem for distressed debt investors because the companies haven't been forced to go bust? Yeah, uh, it's, uh, I mean, it's helped sometimes because you continue to collect interest and it's uh, also unhelpful because at the end of the day, the goal of distressed investing is not to prolong the life of a company that really has no future. It really, on the contrary, it's to restructure it, to make it thrive on the other side. And if there's no catalyst because rates are so low that it can struggle along, but uh, not file for bankruptcy, not cut its debt, not re- restructure its capital structure and its assets, then you really don't have a chance for a new start. So, and, and again, that, of course, changes with higher interest rate. In many ways, you know, I think a lot of young investors will be facing a scenario that they've never seen. Right. I mean, you and I were investing in the early 2000s where rates where, you know, treasuries were at 5%. They haven't ceased to go down since. Sure. But I don't think anyone has seen rising inflation. And I certainly have not been in a, in a very high inflation rate environment for a prolonged uh, time. And I think a lot of investors, if they're in their 30s, have no idea that treasuries could be. Three, four, five percent. No, well, that, I mean, that's an interesting point you make. Of course, the, the inflationary, inflationary environment I find particularly interesting. I mean, I'm quite old, so I've seen quite a few cycles, but I haven't invested in a period of inflation. And very few people who were investing then are still investing today. And I interviewed Mario Gabelli for Real Vision last summer, actually about a year ago, last June. And I was asking him, and I kept asking him the same question, you know, what was it like? What would you do? And and he was very reluctant. I don't know why he was reluctant to be drawn on it. He just made one comment. He said that inflation is a bit like toothpaste. Once it's out of the tube, it's very hard to get it back in, which I don't think was an original comment. I think somebody said that. But um, it's a good point you make because obviously a lot of people listening to this podcast will be younger people in their right. 30s or whatever. And it's something to maybe he doesn't remember oh yeah well i never i never thought of that it's perfectly perfectly possible i mean i think it's it's possible but unlikely because he is one of those people that can remember the number of shares in issue in each stock and i've noticed this a lot of very smart investors they always remember the number of shares, and so they can work out the market capitalization from the current share price. 
And it's a very good trick to be able to do because knowing the market cap is kind of like an essential tool when you're thinking about the business. And of course, a lot of a lot of young analysts think about, you know, the PE ratio or the EV bit there or whatever. And they don't think about, well, how much am I paying for this business? And does it make sense? And it's one of the exactly. things that I do say in the courses is, you know, you start off and say, okay, how much am I paying for this company? Netflix, $300 billion. Does that sound like a, the right number? And um, obviously, $300 billion wasn't the right number for Netflix. And it's now under $100 billion, which is more realistic, but possibly still not a bargain. I don't know. We'll see. You say um, in the book that you like going to museums. You, you find it therapeutic. You live in L.A. Where did you go? The Getty Museum is the only museum I managed to find in L.A. Was that, that I really liked. And it was brilliant. Where would you recommend? I think the Getty is, is, is my favorite museum. And there are two of them. We're talking about the Getty Center, which has the collection of old masters. Uh, but there's also the Getty Villa, which has antiquities and is, is quite good, quite interesting. And it has a, a, an, exhibit, an exhibition about Persia right now, which I love. Uh, the second one I would recommend is the Norton Simon Museum. Norton Simon was a, an American businessman who managed to amass a wonderful collection uh, quite recently, if I remember correctly, it's sort of in the 1950s or so that he uh, began collecting with enormous success. And it's, it's a beautiful uh, encyclopedic collection. He's got also East Asian art. The building is beautiful. It's in Pasadena. It's, it's great. But yes, Steve, LA is not a museum city like London or Paris. And while while I'm in Paris, I go to the museum every day, sometimes twice a day. Oh wow! Well, I mean, Paris is fantastic. Oh, it is just incredible. It's a lovely, lovely city. I was I so enjoyed going there a couple of weeks ago. Listen, um, it's been lovely talking to you. I always ask people the same closing question: Can you recommend a book? to somebody who's thinking about a career in distressed debt investing or a career in investing? A young person, what would you recommend? I mean, I'm going to recommend mine. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I'm going to recommend mine. It's a light, short read that's meant for practitioners and people and, and layperson who's never uh, worked in the field and don't know anything about hedge funds or distressed investing. Uh, then after that, I got to confess that I don't read a lot of finance books. I read a ton of uh, novels, nonfiction, poetry, plays, but not a lot of uh, finance books because I typically find them quite dry. I, I guess uh, my favorite ones uh, are not about distress and they're sort of more uh, they're either funny or thrillers. Uh, I thought Black Edge was very good. That's about the Steve Cohen uh, hedge fund that was loosely the inspiration for the TV show Billions. And of course, the classic uh, Liar's Poker by Michael Lewis is, I think, a must read. That's that's quite fun. The Liar's Poker is a great book. And of course, your book's lovely. It's a lovely book, very easy to read. And Black Edge, I've not read that, so I'm going to... Oh, it's it's uh, it's, it's great. Uh, written by, by a, a female journalist, very well documented and researched, and it's a page turner. Oh, brilliant. Dominique, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Steve. Well, that was an interesting discussion. 
You may have sensed that I didn't agree with Dominique on a number of issues, but the whole point of this podcast is to learn, to challenge existing views, and to gain a broader perspective. And I think we succeeded in that. This podcast is aimed at serious and aspiring equity investors. I hope you enjoyed it. And if so, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And please check out our other great content on the website, behindthebalancesheet.com. Did I mention the free Substack? Thanks for listening. And the podcast is now also available on Amazon Music. 